Welcome to a special episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. Normally, it's a discussion of the news of the day by editors at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. But in these special episodes, we're spending time with the candidates for Cleveland mayor in the first race in 20 years that does not have an incumbent on the ballot. I'm Chris Quinn. I am here with our chief political writer, Seth Richardson, and candidate Bashir Jones, a city councilman in his first term. Seth Richardson will conduct the interview, and I'll be here to ask some follow-ups. Seth, take it away. Yeah, Bashir, thank you so much for joining us here, and I uh, just want to kind of jump right into it. Uh, the city is currently seeing a surge in gun violence and other violent crimes. What policies will you enact to help curtail the spike in violence we've seen over the past year? Well, thank you so much for the invitation. Uh, I, I couldn't wait to get on here uh, with you guys. Uh, I truly appreciate the opportunity. You know, listen, man, gun violence is a, is a major problem, not only in Cleveland, but it's happening all across the country. And in order for us to deal with it, we have to take a holistic approach. You can add all the policies that you want, but you got to have a mayor that is an ambassador and a champion and someone that is willing to go out into the neighborhoods, talk directly with the residents, talk directly with the, the gun owners and say, hey, we have to make a change in our city. Um, you know, I think it's really important that we have and support our officers, uh, making sure that they have the equipment that they need to do their job, but also that we be proactive. You know, we want to make sure that we are investing in our recreation centers, investing in our parks, investing in those things that give young people something to do. Uh, but what we can't do is just make policies from behind a desk in City Hall. Uh, we got to hit the streets. We got to be with the people. And that's the type of mayor that I that I desire to be. So do, do you see the policies that would be coming from you, you know, to address this surge in violent crime? They would be more on, say, the uh, uh, the, the associate, you know, the sociological side. You talk about rec centers. Is that sort of how you are looking to do this or are there are there no kind of law enforcement initiatives that you would also be looking for? Well, you know, Seth, if, if you look at my neighborhood in Ward 7, you're going to see uh, a, a decrease in crime um, because I invested over $12 million with the help of the city into a new recreation center, Kavasic Recreation Center, uh, a couple of million into Thurgood, over a million uh, into Sterling Recreation Center, five brand new parks. Um, and I work with the young people. I sit down with them. I show them how uh, violence will bring less jobs to the community. So I think policy is more than just a piece of paper. Um, and it's more than just, uh, you know, sending a bunch of police officers into the neighborhood. It's about seeing what the neighborhood needs, what the neighborhood wants, and what the neighborhood feel the solution is. Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, we want to make sure that, first of all, we want to fill the 100 or so positions that we already have with CPD before we can talk about adding new. Uh, we have to be a city where police want to come and work. Uh, so I just think that it's more holistic. It's not a one uh, brush approach. You have to you have to uh, be involved in many different ways. You you would set up a program for women to be trained to carry concealed weapons. It, it, the, the idea was that they need the protection. You had a pretty effective uh, campaign brochure about that. How does that fit into the holistic approach you're talking about? You know, you know, thank you for that question. I, I think that you know, as, as Americans, it's really interesting that when we talk about, you know, guns, it, it's, it's a very different conversation when you talk about urban America opposed to rural America. You know, when urban America speaks about guns, it's, it's you know, it's, it's talking about violence. But when, you know, rural America speak about guns, it's, you know, uh, your second, you know, your fulfillment of your Second Amendment right. 
you know, city of Cleveland has been very dangerous for women, very dangerous. And uh, we need for our women to feel safe. They're our mothers, they're our wives, they are our teachers. They should feel safe in our, in our city. And I think that it's not just about guns, but it's about the improper usage of guns. Um, so my, my goal, uh, and we got registered uh, over, over 800 women reached out to me and we helped them with the, with the help of CCW instructors across the city. And we helped those women get their CCWs. Uh, and, uh, you know, I can tell you, it, uh, our city will feel much better when, when the woman feels, you know, feels safe. And we will never be successful as a city when our women, every time they leave the house, feel like uh, this could be their last time. So once again, it's about being a holistic approach. You mentioned, uh, you know, needing to fill the hundred or so officer, you know, the gap that we have right now. But, you know, recruitment has been pretty sluggish for the police department. So how do you make, you know, a, a, a job being a police officer in the city of Cleveland more attractive so that it attracts more candidates and the right you know, candidates for that matter? Yeah. Yeah. Listen, man, you have to have a mayor that is an ambassador. That's a champion um, that can go out into the community. I mean, if you talk with uh, the recruitment team, they'll tell you that I've been one of the biggest proponents of, of recruitment, you know, using my social media platform and letting people know you can't just complain about the system. You have to be a part of it. And our officers every day, they give their lives, put their lives on the line. And we have to make sure that we uh, give them the opportunity to be successful. I mean, come on, man. We have to invest in better equipment. Our officers are driving around in cars over 200,000 miles with bald tires. They don't feel loved. They don't feel appreciated. Uh, they're, they're, they're handcuffed and, and, and uh, not even able to do their job. Right? So what we have to do is be a city where our officers want to work. We have to look at the pay and become more competitive in pay. Once again, we have to look at the equipment, better investment in equipment. Uh, we have to let officers do their job. As I tell my community, hey, listen, I'm all for community, but we will not be the wild, wild west. Uh, we will not be a place where, you know, you can you can hop on your motorbike and stop traffic and, you know, run over children. We can't do that. We cannot do that. And we will not allow that. Uh, you know, so I think that's really important that you have a mayor that that uh, shows appreciation to the officers. You know, while in council, I I put money towards mindfulness programs. Uh, for the officers because they're dealing with trauma as well. So we have to create a better environment for our officers. And I think that when we do that, uh, as they're going out and, and doing the work, uh, that they feel better doing it. Okay, you went there. So let's go there fully. We're having this conversation in the week after hundreds and hundreds of people on vehicles that are not legal on the street, motorbikes and three-wheelers and all sorts of things marauded through the city. For 20 minutes, they would block intersections. They ended up blocking the interstate. There were reports that some were waving guns. There were some reports they fired guns. I don't know if that's accurate or not. But but you just said you you wouldn't have that. You wouldn't allow that. The current policy of the city is to not chase them because chasing them is likely to cause their reckless behavior that results in their death or crashing into somebody else. So how would you stop that? A lot of people are talking about it this week, but how would you go about working with your police department to stop that kind of behavior? It's not just about working with the police department. That's a part of it, but it's about working with the community. Listen, the community is just as upset about it. The community is just as upset about it. Uh, I've reached out and I have relationship with some of the founders of those bike groups and said to them, hey, listen, man, you know, I love you guys. I want you guys to be successful. I want you to be safe, but we're not going to tolerate that with me as mayor. 
So you got to have somebody who can speak that language without sounding, you know, if, if what I'm saying, if that came out of, you know, another person's mouth, it would maybe considered racist, even if they're even if they're correct. But it just doesn't sound right. You can't uh, you, you, you can't you can't if you've never established a relationship with these people, then you can't come to them and tell them they need to stop something. You need to have been there prior to. Um, prior to telling them what they can't do. So I've reached out to them. I've also met with other bike clubs, uh, you know, the Omens, the Zulus, Hell's Angels. And they're just as upset as well because these renegade bikers are making it bad for other bikers who who, uh, who are hardworking men and women uh, whose bike is not illegal and they want to ride their streets and do well. They're making it bad for them. So I just want everyone to know that residents don't like this either. Residents are not happy with it either. So I've talked with these community members and I'm letting them know under my administration, this idea that of this lawlessness will not be tolerated. And so pragmatically, the- pragmatically, how, what is a strategy that stops that? You say, I won't tolerate it. And, and so I hear you, you're going to talk to them. You're going to do the community relations part of it. But, but if they're on the street, if they were, you know, they were on the street this weekend, what is the pragmatic way to stop them that does not create more of a public safety issue if they start driving recklessly? Thank you, Chris. I mean, listen, you know, I'm not an expert. You know, we're going to have to sit with, you know, the officers. We're going to have to sit with uh, the chief and we're going to have to come up with a way. But the first step is to talk with the community and letting them know that we're letting you know that we're not going to tolerate it. The second step is then, uh, you know, putting this thing in implementation. Um, the idea of them just doing this without officers stopping them. No, we're going to be taking bikes. No, we're going to be, if you continue to do it, you will be arrested. Uh, you're not going to, we want to be proactive. Before something happens where somebody can lose their life, we want to be proactive. And if people want to continue to do that, then they're going to deal with the consequences. The consequences is taking your bike. The consequences is, um, you know, the consequences is fines. The consequences could possibly be jail. Um, I just think that we have to, once again, uh, create a conversation with the community involved, the police is involved, and the biker community is involved, and as a whole community, establish which way we're going to go. And as a city, and as the mayor, uh, I will be in charge of implementing um, the consequences for that. Well, I think we could probably talk about crime all day, right? But we do want to get some other topics in here. And, you know, one of those is these, you know, this big windfall of federal one-time dollars that is going to be coming in. Uh, you know, I've heard you talk on the campaign trail about leveraging those dollars and, you know, some kind of big ideas like that. But I really do want to know what your basic line-by-line line plan is for spending that $511 million that is going to be coming in. Well, you know, you know, you, you never know what uh, this mayor has planned. Uh, you know, we have half that money that's in. So you just never know. You know, any of us who's saying, you know, what we're going to do is, uh, you, you know, our plans. But, you know, you don't really know until you get in to see what is really available, what has been put in place, what needs to be, um, you know, what needs to be removed as far as what this mayor has uh, uh, put in place in regards to the funding. But what I can tell you is that if we have the $511 million from the American Rescue Plan, uh, this is a tremendous boost to Cleveland, and we have to address the negative economic impacts resulting from this pandemic. I mean, it's a lifetime opportunity. So we have to leverage these dollars. We have to bring in public and private partnership. We should be able to make turn $511 million uh, into $5 billion. Why not? But the three major things that I would like to focus on, number one, 
is to support small businesses. I think it's critical to the city's recovery. I mean, most new jobs come from small businesses. So we got to talk about small business leaders, talk to small business leaders to determine what's needed to get their businesses thriving again. You know, our unemployment rate has doubled since the pandemic. Right. So we have to deal with that. And we have to work with the CDCs. Um, so we, working with CDCs is going to really assist us. CDCs are the are on the ground. They're dealing with everyday issues. So small business grants and workforce development. The second thing is senior housing. We have to look at ways to maximize the impact of the funding. Uh, and the way to do that is to invest in our CDCs. Right? And these CDCs, funding can go through them. And we can begin to fix our seniors' homes. I mean, this is good. We have tax abatements and, you know, we want to bring new people in to the neighborhood. But what about the residents who have been living there for generations, who are living in homes where roofs are leaking, back porches need to be fixed? So we need to look into senior living um, and and making sure that we can invest and help senior living. The the third thing I would like to do, uh, Seth, is look at safety force unit upgrades. You know, we really need to speak on We'll look into equipment upgrades so that all safety workers can effectively do their jobs, you know, and not only that, but look at the equipment within the city. You know, there's upgrades that need to take place as well as infrastructure. And, and lastly, I think as far as educational goals, we need to close the digital divide. Okay, we have to have better Wi-Fi in our communities. Uh, they say that when, when America has a, a sneeze, uh, poor people have pneumonia. And we saw that with the we saw that with this pandemic, how poor people had a tough time. Uh, it truly showed, it lift the cover up, how bad um, we have treated uh, poor people. So those are the things that I will focus on. I will focus on once again small business grants, workforce development, senior housing, living, safety force unit upgrades, and uh, uh, closing the digital divide. Well, what's kind of a dollar amount that you'd like to see go to each of those or even just a percent amount that, uh, you know, you'd like to be able to, uh, you know, I want to put X amount into this and X amount into this. Yeah. Well, once again, it's all about leveraging. I was I've been meeting with investment bankers here in the city, a great gentleman by the name of John Penny, who does a lot of work in regards to bringing business to the city. And he said, listen, we can put aside 50 million dollars and leverage that to become 750 million dollars and really look at small business grants and workforce development. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's really important that we not only talk about the money that we have, but looking at bringing in banks who have Community Reinvestment Act dollars, who have resources, and really bring that, that, those funding together. You know, in regards of the, of the specificities of, of number amounts, this is something that we are, we're still working on. But uh, I can tell you that these are the top things, the top points, small business grants, workforce development, senior housing living, um, safety, safety, uh, safety upgrades, as well as closing the digital divide. I think those things are just uh, fruits that are on the branch that we can quickly do uh, that people can feel a change in the city. Uh, so you brought up the digital divide and, you know, we, we saw that kind of laid bare during the pandemic, right, where, uh, you know, kids didn't necessarily have equal access to uh, broadband internet. And you mentioned expanding broadband internet or expanding Wi-Fi, what does that look like as far as, you know, is it is it Wi-Fi hotspots? Is it increasing access into the homes? What does, you know, closing that digital divide look like? Well, you know, we, we have an example. You know, a lot of people, they'll, they'll say, well, you know, Bashir, you're, you're, you're just a first-term councilman. But I just want people to really pay attention to what we've done here in Ward 7 in not even four years. I mean, take a year away for COVID 
um, and we're not even at January, you're talking about two and a half years, look at what we accomplished. In my neighborhood, I partnered with Digital C. Digital C is right here in Ward 7. We partnered with CMHA and we placed equipment on the buildings of CMHA buildings. And not only do the people within the building uh, have access to internet, but also everyone in between. So what I see is, you know, one of the issues I have in this city is that you have so many different institutions and no one works together. I mean, literally no one works together. Uh, I mean, look, in my neighborhood, you have CMHA police, CPD police, Case Western Reserve police, Cleveland State University police. <laughs> you have University Hospital police, Cleveland Clinic police, right? And no one's working together. So I believe that there, it's not the lack of money that this city has. It's not the lack of any resources that we have. It's the lack of political will. It's the lack of unity. It's the lack of setting up a clear vision of this is how we're going to move together. This is how we're going to move forward and us working together. I think that's the key. So I think in dealing with Wi-Fi and dealing with the digital divide, you have CMSD, you have CMHA, you have all these institutions. We should be working together, whether that's providing devices, whether that's placing devices on top of buildings, right? Whatever we need to do, let's bring the right experts in who can show us how it needs to get done and let's make it happen with urgency. Well, there's, you had said during the editorial board in, endorsement interview, you talked about the multiple police departments. And I didn't ask the follow up there because we had spent so much time on crime. But but I'm very familiar with all of those police departments. The Cleveland Clinic has its own police department because they want to keep their, their campus safe. Case Western Reserve University has a police department tasked specifically with keeping its campus safe. Same with university Circle police, same with the CMHA police. And so it, it, it sounds good to say they should all work together, but they all have very, very different purposes. And if if any of them started to use their resources to do things that didn't accrue to their mission, they'd get in trouble. I mean, the Cleveland Clinic does not want the Cleveland Clinic police patrolling in the neighborhood. They want to keep their campus safe. That's why they pay them. So when you talk about that they've got to work together, I, that, that sounds good on the surface, but I don't see pragmatically how that works. Could you go into that a little bit? Without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, well, first thing, when you say keep them safe, I'm wondering, keep them safe from who? That's the first question that I like to ask. But let's come back to that. The second thing is they're already within neighborhoods. They're already within neighborhoods. So that's number two. Number three, when they arrest, where do they take them? Where are they taking them to? They're taking them to, in most cases, the county jail, which the city has a jail within that. So they're already working together in some shape or form. I think that Case Western Reserve, which is within a neighborhood, which is on the cusp of my neighborhood, um, can easily begin to patrol, even if they patrol in their surrounding area. That's still Wade Park. That's still University Circle. Right. So I, I believe that it's it, it, or, or, or Cleveland Clinic. That's still the Fairfax community. Right. So my point is, is that we need to have a shared vision. And I think that us being on one page and even if they just focus on their 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 territory, their territory is still the city of Cleveland. <laughs> it's still Cleveland. Right. And I just think that if we had a shared vision, um, look, the example is East Cleveland. Uh, Chris, I mean, look at how East Cleveland continues to burrow through the city of Cleveland and continue to put our residents in harm's way without any uh, consequence um, from the city of Cleveland. 
No one should be able to do this in the city without us having say-so on how things need to happen. And I believe as mayor, it's about us sitting down with the CEOs of these institutions, sitting down with the mayors, sitting down with the mayors of this region. What, what is a shared vision that we have? What is our shared vision? Because guess what? All of the residents are all of our residents, right? And what happens in Cleveland affects what happens in South Euclid and Richmond. I believe that it's time for us to have a shared vision in this city. And hey, listen, some people may let say, well, Bashir, are you talking about regionalism? And listen, I'm not going to get into that conversation. All I'm saying is that what happens in Cleveland Heights, it affects Cleveland. So we might as well sit down and say, what do we agree upon? And let's work towards things in a, in a unified fashion. Well, I think one thing that can be uh, pretty well agreed upon by a lot of residents is uh, the infrastructure of Cleveland public power has a lot of problems with it. And, you know, at the other end, you've got First Energy that, you know, is admitted to bribing state lawmakers and working to undermine and overtake Cleveland public power. So I'm wondering, what is what do you think the best course forward is for Cleveland public power to ensure, you know, residents have reliable and affordable power through the public utility? I mean, man, this is a, a serious problem. This is a serious problem. And I, I, I was just walking the street yesterday and it wasn't. Um, uh, they weren't talking about CCP, but they were talking about the illuminating company. Somebody else was talking about the water company and how these utilities have truly let the people down. I mean, there are people who are afraid to lose their homes as a result of being overcharged. Uh, we we got to really clean up. Not We have to clean up City Hall and we have to clean up these utility companies. Um, they have been more of a harm than, than a help. And, uh, you know, I think they just have to bring the right experts in who understand this much better than I do. And that we work together and figure out how do we make sure that the people of this city have affordable energy um, and you have this amazing asset of a lake. How are we utilizing that uh, in regards to uh, in regards to energy and water and so forth and so on? You know, once again, I just think that that is extremely important to bring the right people in. Clearly, the right people are not running CCP and. Um, and, and listen, years ago, there was a director that worked for CCP who said that, you know, that continue to go in this direction is going to lead us to this destination. And no one listened. CCP is no more than a place where uh, the mayor just puts people there who are looking for job opportunities and they don't even have necessarily uh, the expertise to do the work. It's just become more of a dumping ground uh, rather than a place uh, we should be leading the world. Uh, in regards to energy. We should be leading the world because we sit on um, the largest fresh body water in the world um, in, the, in these amazing lakes. So that, that's that's what I believe. Do you think the city, the city should entertain selling CPP to private interests? Uh, no, no, I don't. I don't believe that. I don't think that's I don't think that's the key. But I do believe that we need to bring the right people in to help us fix this. And listen, you know, though you're asking me the amazing question, there's a lot of things that I'm I'm still learning. And no one person knows everything. But I think that my strength, uh, and, and I've shown it within Ward 7, is that I have the ability to, to, to connect with those who are experts and work with them. You know, whether it's working with uh, Jeff Epstein over at Midtown or John Alifo at, at Famico, these people are experts. They know what they're doing. And I had the ability to listen to them. That's why we had uh, the Cleveland Foundation move into Ward 7. That's why we have some of the biggest growth taking place in Ward 7 than any other part of the city, because I have the ability to listen. 
So, you know, I want to bring the right experts in, listen to them, see what we need to do with CCP. But whatever we do is going to be in the best interest of the community. So Bashir, you raise a, another interesting topic. You mentioned you're your first term council person and that you've done a lot of things in your ward, uh, but that there are a lot of things you're still learning. You are running against a couple of candidates that have in the past or recent past been immersed in all things city government. Kevin Kelly is the council president for eight years. Dennis Kucinich was mayor a, a very, very long time ago. Uh, but but they, they're not still learning because they've immersed in it. So why should a voter choose you who needs to learn this stuff and get to understand it over somebody that already has that knowledge and can start on day one dealing with it? <laughs> well, number one, anyone that has stopped learning is dead. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, if, 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 if they, if their what has their experience gotten us as a city, uh, their experience hasn't gotten us very far. Um, I, I listen, you, you have to be a person. I mean, you can't solve 21st century problems the 18th century way. I mean, listen, Chris, man, I mean, just take, just take, just take what, what they have done. Look at what I have done with the help of amazing people in two and a half years. You're talking about a Cleveland Foundation choosing to move towards seven. You're talking about a cross-country mortgage that's bringing over 700 jobs. You're talking about a brand new supermarket. You're talking about Allen Estates. You're talking about a brand new library. Uh, you're talking about uh, workforce development over there on 90th and Chester. And, and I still have six more projects that is slated to be uh, groundbreaking. No other council person in this race, no other person in this race has done more than I have done in my first term. No one else can even compare. And listen, uh, with all due respect to the gentleman who was the mayor some time ago, just because you was mayor doesn't mean you were successful at it. Just because you were the council president for eight years doesn't mean you were successful at it. It just means that the people, uh, you know, I remember a, a resident saying to me, she said, I'd rather deal with the devil I know than the devil I don't know. I was like, well, why do we got to deal with devils? You know, why can't we deal with <laughs> human beings that, you know, want to do right by the community? I don't think that a person being in a position for a long time or even having a position says a lot. I mean, look at the council person that we've had recently who's been in office for close to 40 years and look at the results. So we're clear that there needs to go into a new direction and experience. Um, what, are, what do you have experience in? You know, I have experience in fighting for the people. I have experience in being an, a voice. I have experience in being uh, being out there. And, and that's why the people know me. And look what I've accomplished within my first term. I mean, take take every council person that you want to mention and compare them to what we've done in Ward 7. Uh, I mean, it will be a pale appearance. Uh, so I think that when people say, hey, these people have immersed themselves, you know, immersing yourself in water can get you drowned. <laughs> We want to move on to the next topic, and you know the, the Indians or the Guardians are going to be asking for public money for progressive field renovations. You know here pretty soon. Uh, you know I would imagine that the Browns are going to be doing so at some point in the future too. With you know First Energy Stadium being about two decades old now, uh, do you support the use of public dollars to help private sports teams with their stadiums or stadium renovations? You know I don't think it's a problem with it. I don't think that's the problem that Clevelanders have. I think the problem is that Cleveland continues to choose corporations uh, over over neighborhoods. 
You know, I think that if we invested more in neighborhoods, the community wouldn't feel bad if we partnered with, I think it has to be a good deal, don't get me wrong, but I don't think there's a problem there. I think that when you just forget about neighborhoods and there's no development in neighborhoods, that is the issue. So as mayor, my focus is how do we invest in Cam's Corner? How do we invest in Huff? How do we invest in Glenville and Collinwood? How do we invest invest down, you know, in Lorraine and Detroit and Emory uh, in the Emory neighborhood? How do we do that? I think that's the key. And I think that with this five hundred and eleven million dollars that's coming in, that's where the focus needs to be. Now, I, I see the plan. You know, the Browns wants to 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 do this this big thing downtown. And listen, I'm all for having a great downtown. I believe me, I'm for it. But if we're building a downtown just for our visitors. And even our residents can't come and enjoy it. That's a problem. So we always have to be community focused. We always have to be neighborhood focused. And that's what I've done in my neighborhood. The first thing that I created when I became councilman was the Huff Community Land Trust. My first project was a $30 million project on Ansel and Huff. And guess what? They don't own the land. The land is owned by the Huff Community Land Trust, which is filled with community members who say, you know what? We want to determine the destiny of our community. And with the help of the Cleveland Foundation and the help with Midtown, we established it. And now the Huff Community Land Trust is now owning land throughout the community. This, 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 we have to put the power back into the hands of the people. And I think that, you know, you're going to see a lot of attacks. You're going to see people who are upset with me because they know that I am not the darling of the corporate community. But I want the corporate community to understand that I'm all for building buildings. I'm all for it. But you got to build people at the same time. You can't just build buildings without building people. And I think that that is the message. That is the way that we become a better Cleveland. Clevelanders don't have an issue with us strengthening our downtown. Cleveland has an issue with being left behind. That's the issue. Well, sure. But I think the question is, you know, with all these priorities that, you know, all the mayoral candidates talk about, right, all the things that we've talked about up until this point, would, you know – is it wise for a mayor to be spending public dollars on, you know, private sports team stadiums when there are so many other priorities? And is that something that you would consider doing? I, I, I would consider it. I don't think, once again, I'm saying, I don't believe that that is the issue. I think the first issue is that we need to look at developing neighborhoods. As far as the progressive field and in regards to the guardians, you know, we're going to sit down and have a deal. We, we want to have a, a great baseball team here. We want to have a great basketball team, a great football team here. I am open to having those discussions. But if it does not include how it's going to benefit the community, then, then the, you know, the deal is, is dead on arrival. Um, I think that the first thing that I'm focused on with this American uh, CARES Act funding is focus. How do we dispense these dollars to small businesses? How do we dispense these dollars to help rebuild seniors' homes so that we can increase generational wealth so they can pass down homes uh, to their to their children? That is the focus. So I'm 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 for all of that, but we have to be for all of that: building buildings and building. Okay, people. so. So say the deal comes in, there's a hundred million deal dollars deal. It's a $60 million contribution from the city to fortify the baseball stadium in return for the Indians lease. And you know, based on what happened with the arena four years ago, there'll be people who are opposed to spending private or public dollars on what they consider to be a private enterprise, even though the city owns it. And inevitably somebody will stand up and say, how do you spend $60 million of the taxpayer's money 
on a baseball stadium when you could spend $60 million to eradicate lead paint from Cleveland homes that are, that are harming children's brains generation after generation. What would your response be to that question? I think that's a, I think that's a valid question. And I think the difference between uh, me and, and others as a mayor is that I plan to have community input. I don't think that these are decisions that need to be made in a vacuum. I, I want to hear the public comment. I want to hear the people. And I don't want to make a deal uh, in a dark room somewhere. I want that deal to be discussed and talked about in the open so that the community can have some say so. But listen, at the end of the day, there's always going to be somebody who disagrees with, with what you plan to do or what you want to do. That can't be what stop us from moving forward. My bottom line is how does it uh, how does it affect the community? How does it affect the neighborhoods? And if 60 million is an investment that is going to benefit the community in the long run, then then it's a good deal. And it, but if it's not, listen, there's a lot of issues, Chris. I mean, there's a lot of issues. I mean, there's so many issues that 60 million dollars can go towards. But we have to ask ourselves how do we leverage these dollars that we can have a greater impact. If leveraging these dollars uh, or if using those dollars to to, um, to to rebuild the progressive or whatever the case may be, if that's not good for the community, then it's a no on that deal. Um, but we have to understand it from a holistic standpoint and not just right now, but how will it impact us in the future? You know, one thing we want to do is kind of get in the mind of what a, uh, you know, a staff for you might be like or, uh, you know, what city hall staffing is going to look like. And, you know, we kind of wonder who in the community or who in the past sort of embodies the qualities that you would like in a chief of staff if you were elected mayor. Not necessarily who you would pick, but who sort of has those qualities that you, you know, are looking for in a chief of staff. Wow, wow. That's a good question, Seth, man. Uh, well, you know, I thought where you were going with that question is, is who would I like to embody myself after as a mayor? And for me, it's, you know, Carl Stokes, it's, it's, it's Maynard Jackson, you know, down in Atlanta. You know, those are, are people who I believe really, uh, really leverage. And I think that that's what the excitement is. You know, the excitement is, you know, we are at the changing of a guard and, and going in a different direction. As far as the chief of staff, what I'm looking for, and listen, that, that person may be in Cleveland or that person may not be in Cleveland. You know, we're, we're open to the best and the brightest wherever they are in the world. Uh, no matter their culture, no matter their religion, uh, no matter their socioeconomic status, we want people who truly care about this city and, 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 and who can assist me in that. And that chief of staff is a person who, um, who is a kind person, you know, somebody that knows how to work with all people, willing to work with all people, not closed off uh, to, um, you know, uh, uh, to others, uh, not, not being, um, you know, uh, this, this nepotism that we face that you that you only have people who work for you who like you uh, but not people who truly care about uh, making a change and making a difference um, so a person who is who, who has a sense of urgency like me and a person who says hey we need to get it done not tomorrow but we need to get it done right now uh, a person who's brilliant and a person who has a love for the community. I don't plan to be a mayor that's going to be in City Hall a lot. I plan to be in the community. Uh, I plan to travel this country, focus on bringing business back to the city and being an ambassador for the city. So that chief of staff is going to have a lot on, on his or her shoulders and uh, they have to be ready. Uh, and I don't have that person right now. I don't have that person, but I, I look forward to finding them soon. But truly there's so someone 
throughout the so let me let me follow up on that before you move on seth so the the election is the second week of november and the office uh becomes the next mayor's in january not a whole lot of time to find that person or find a cabinet and you're running against some people who have long history of connections where they might be able to draw on the community to build their cabinet fairly quickly. You're still a young councilman. How, how would you build that cabinet in the short order of time that you, you need to? Have you been building relationships in areas where you think the field of candidates would be? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Well, well, Chris, I think you're very kind to uh, you're, you're very kind to these candidates. I, I don't I, I don't have you know, I think that they're nice people, but I don't I really I wouldn't be running if I thought they did such a great job. Uh, I, I think that, you know, this city is at a crossroads and and we have to go in a different direction. So, yeah, you might be right. They they have, uh, uh, um, you know, relationships with, with with certain people. But, you know, a lot of those people are some a lot of these people are still in City Hall and they're all people who need to go, to be quite honest. Uh, you know, I have some amazing people with me, man. Uh, Chris Redford, you know, who uh, is brilliant, a brilliant man. I have a, you know, a Sheila Wright who speaks life into me as a big sister. I, I, I get my advice from, you know, Marsha Fudge, who, who's been a, a political mother to me. You know, I have enough relationships. Um, and, and, and right now, uh, you know, I have a young lady um, who used to be the state superintendent uh, for D.C. schools, uh, a young lady by the name of Hosanna, who's just a phenomenal, phenomenal woman who's been, you know, acting in that space. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still figuring things out. I'm going to have an amazing transition team full of experts uh, who know what they're doing, who know a lot better, a lot more than me. I don't think that it's a weakness to be open to learning. I don't think that it's a weakness to be uh, open to uh, establishing new relationships. I think that we are a city that is a one-party city, and we only want to do business with what who we know. And as a result of that, our city continues to be ranked very high as for poverty and very high for violence. So that experience is not working. We need to be open to working with all people and maybe even people who are from a different uh, on a different side of the aisle. You know, they may not be Democrats. They may not be black. They may not be white. <laughs> they may not be. They may be a part of the LGBTQ community. Like we should be open to all of that. And I don't think that uh, I, I think that I, being a Morehouse grad, you know, uh, you know, having my master's degree from Claremont School of Theology, I, I have enough connections to to bring those people together fairly quickly. People love Cleveland and they want to come back, but the problem is they don't feel welcome. Okay. So one of the, the interesting things about campaigns like this, high profile campaigns, is inevitably most or all of the candidates encounter controversy from their past. You know, We've had a recent story about uh, another candidate and some relations with uh, First Energy that that right. resulted in in some discussion. There are others that I think will be bubbling up uh, even as we speak. You had your bit of right. controversy when a video resurfaced from a speech you made some years ago in which your descriptions of women were offensive to some women. And if you could talk a little bit about that, because how you handle these controversies, how you deal with this is is information voters find valuable 
in choosing yes. their leaders. How do people deal with a crisis? This was a little bit of a crisis, not a huge crisis. <laughs> so how do you respond to that? Oh, thank you, Chris. Thank you for that question. You know, that, that speech was given, it, it was taken out of context. Um, it was a message that was given to, um, given to a specific community. Um, you know, growing up in my community, I grew up in a single parent's household. And my mom, she, uh, she really struggled. You know, Chris, man, I grew up in the Salvation Army. I grew up in shelters here in the city. And my dad was nowhere around. You know, my father, um, and maybe it's a blessing, right? I mean, because I, I turned out to be who I am, but it really put a lot of stress on my mom who passed away from, from breast cancer uh, year, years ago. Um, and, and she would always tell me, Bashir, be, be a man who uh, takes care of your community, takes care of your family, and, and don't leave your family. Um, so during that time, there was a lot of violence going against women. A lot of young girls were being snatched up. A lot of women were being murdered. Um, and I was just tired of it, man. I was tired of it. I was traveling around this community and I was and I was telling men, you have to stand up. You have to be leaders. It, it can't just be on the backs of women of this community. Women have been our leaders and they continue to be our leaders, but men have to do a better job. Uh, so that speech was me encouraging men, not 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 trying to discourage women. That wasn't it. And, and, and the, in the community that I was speaking to, they knew very well what I was trying to say, what I said. Okay. Thanks. Seth, do you have any other questions? I think that about wraps it up. Well, thank you very much, Bashir Jones, for spending time with us talking about your campaign. Thanks, Seth. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. We'll have profiles of the other candidates as well. 